In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 10 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. So let's start with the email roundup, and we've got quite a bit of email today. Tim says I should keep up the good work. That's good advice. I think I will. Thanks for writing, Tim. And Bill dropped me a note to say that he's looking to start a game for some friends soon, and he's finding some inspiration here in this podcast. Thanks, Bill. That's just what I want. Now, Michael emailed in with some interesting points. He's actually under the impression that Traveller is designed for long-term campaign play, as one-shots don't have the right feel. Wow. When I read that, I was a bit, wow, like, what, wow, what does he mean? I've always thought of Traveller as perfect for one-shots. Character generation can be quickly included in a single session, For instance, I've had five PCs rolled up in half an hour, with four out of five of the players being entirely new to the system. So that's not the problem. As for the feel, well, I can only assume that he means getting a feeling for the breadth of the Imperium, the various tech levels, the exploration factor. If that's the case, then it may be that you're trying too hard to include all of that. That kind of experience must surely be beyond a single session. Maybe you should keep things much smaller, keep a tinier scope for one-shots. Sure, the feel of the Imperium, the broader brushstrokes won't be there, but you could hint at it. For instance, if you have a team investigating something mysterious in space, stick them on a small starship a long way from help so that the story is small-scale and personal. But at the same time, all your PCs are part of the bigger Imperial picture, based on the character generation process the equipment that they're carrying, all that sort of thing. Even maybe have the thing being investigated part of that bigger picture. As the referee, you only have to explain that part of the bigger picture when it's revealed. The, oh my God, it's an Aslan ship moment. Michael also asked how he might pitch a game to players who are younger than the system. That's tricky. These youngsters, and that's players under 40, by the way, have been spoiled by these newfangled rule systems with their story mechanics and art mixed into the pages. To be honest, I'm not too sure on this either. It's always a good idea to pitch the story rather than the rules themselves. Mechanisms don't sell, unless the story has caught them first, of course. And here's an author hint. Set your story at a time of change. When big things are rolling over, governments are falling, new races are appearing technology failing. These are the times, the events, that catch in the memory. And then you might move on to say that the system is rules lightish. You're not going to be taking five-foot steps or consulting five pages of grappling rules. It's just a case of get on with it. It lets you push the story rather than pushing the rules. You might also avoid saying that it's an old set of rules and perhaps instead use the word venerable. Anyway, thanks for getting in touch, Michael. I had another email, quite a flurry of them today. George emailed to ask me some questions. Firstly, why use Traveller, Classic Traveller, when I've already mentioned newer systems such as 316 and Diaspora? That's quite easy to answer. 
I'm comfortable with it. I was playing it during the last millennium. Sure, I don't know all the rules, and I keep being surprised by what I've been fudging up to this point. But its simplicity, its familiarity, keeps me interested. It lets me tell sci-fi stories across such a vast swathe of tech level and locale, and you don't always get that with many other systems. They have much more restrictive backgrounds. Diaspora is cool, but it has a realism element, such as no grav plates, that is something I don't want to play with all the time. It's not the system, but the implied background that I feel is more restricting in that case. Ah, and 316. That's perfect for a wham-blam one-shot, but it does lack the detail for a longer campaign, says he who wrote a 316 campaign. Its background, again, is all about killing and more killing. Sure, you can force more into it, but that's not where it actually shines. And thus I came back to Traveller, and Classic Traveller at that. Now, have I tried the other Travellers? Not with too much joy, is the answer. Mega Traveller, back when it came out, I was not a fan, but to be honest, this many years on, I can't remember why. I can't remember what I didn't like about it. From there, I did take a peek at 2300, but that wasn't even Traveller. And I was very burnt on these earlier versions, and then on a whim I picked up T4, and was burnt by the huge errata issues. I mean... Good luck building a ship with some of the shipbuilding tables just plain missing. As for T5, I've not heard a single good word about it. Only excuses. And as for Mongoose, I haven't read it yet, but it is on the pile. I hear it's so close to classic, though, that I fear I may love it. George also asked why I choose to use my own Tessesso subsector when there's a massive universe of pre-generated worlds to pick from. That's easy, too. I wanted it to be original. I made a deliberate attempt to force my creativity. It's purely a personal thing. There's nothing wrong with using the existing systems if you want to. George has also become the show's first segment contributor by submitting a person of interest which you'll be hearing during the next episode. And so, without further ado, we move on from the mailbag. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is my galaxy, where I tell you about the planets in the Tercesso subsector. Today, we're taking a look at Avkanad. Avkanad is so close to being a garden world that when it was originally discovered, it was trumpeted across the Imperium as the place to settle. This caused a kind of gold rush-like migration to the planet as settlers arrived hoping to claim an estate. The planet was quickly covered with family estates, but this was not to last long. The orbit of Avakand has a neighbouring dead planet, known as the Plague by the inhabitants, and they have such a complex relationship that causes them to conjunction every hundred years or so. It happened that the settlement took place midway between these conjunctions. When the next conjunction happened, an unforeseen occurrence led to the death of many hundreds of thousands of settlers. The combination of altered gravity and a slight increase in temperature on the surface caused by the nearness of the plague planet, caused a massive eruption of microbial life on this planet. The atmosphere had always been thought to contain an oddly high amount of dust and pollen. The conjunction proved this dust was actually a spore, for a tiny life form that only comes to life during such conjunctions. Although not directly dangerous to human life, 
Breathing air during the conjunction leads to many lung problems and secondary infections. It was this that caused so many deaths amongst the populace. Coming on the heels of the clarion call come to Avkanad, the disaster was widely reported and gave the planet a death planet reputation that all but killed the immigration. There is no meaningful starport on the planet and no significant exports. The society is agrarian in nature, but any food exports are likely to be rejected by the recipients when they learn of its planet of origin, as the reputation of Avkanad is still well known. There is also no central government here. Instead, the leading families that survived the first eruption of the plague have created a self-perpetuating leadership by consent, if not by law. In disputes, the inhabitants call upon the leading families to mediate. The population is hovering around a sustained five million or so. This level of population is not enforced, but a cultural tendency and local custom prevents people having many children and thereby reducing the size of the inheritance to be handed on. Although not a particularly backward world technologically, they are pushing the boundaries in some areas. In particular, during the last 30 years or so, they've started constructing floating estates on the seas. These are floating platforms large enough to sustain small flocks of animals and housing for those brave enough to take to the water. Visitors to Avkanad should bring gifts for those they wish to visit or interact with, as this is a local custom and off-world technology is particularly favoured for gifts. A visitor who does not bring gifts is considered rude. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. Right, it's time to give you another story seed. You may remember that in the last episode I reviewed a product called 10,000 Daring Rescues. Today's story seed is based upon a result from that product. Chuiksol was a big man. He led raiders against a whole host of colonist outposts when the planet Mithander was in its earliest days of colonisation. He and his cohorts would swoop in on the homesteaders and steal any and everything of any value, often leaving the victims, if not actually dead, with no way to support themselves or call for help. He was hated, he was feared. Then Carabold came. Carabold was the self-declared emperor of a nearby planet and was set on carving out an empire across multiple planets. His forces swept in on Mithander, eliminating all that resisted. Tuixol was the unlikely hero. For reasons never really elaborated on, he fought the invader and ended up leading the resistance that eventually threw Carabold off the planet. He was lauded as a hero. Yet, he had so many enemies he could not ever rest easy. And now we get to today. Chuik has been kidnapped. While in the gardens of the Grand House, the grateful populace voted to him, he was assaulted and disappeared. All that remained in the garden was a short blood trail and tracks showing that Chuik had been dragged away. A big bounty has been offered for his return, and that's where the PCs come in. If they can find him, they'll get that reward. There are quite a few people to suspect, and the players will have to narrow down the field and find out who actually has him. Any of the homesteaders that he attacked in his past life may have come back for revenge. Carabold, or one of his lieutenants, may have sent a kidnap team for revenge. Anyone asking questions around the house 
will find that his household staff do not hold any great opinion of the master of the house. He would beat them and then pay them bonuses to keep them quiet. His recent forays into the political arena have caused a stir here. The existing political parties have reason to fear a popular hero who might take away their power base. It's been rumoured that he has a massive off-planet treasure hoard and that he is the only one who knows its whereabouts. Has some treasure hunter turned up? Have they kidnapped him to reveal his secrets? All of these can be hinted at, but the truth could be something much more mundane. Chewick recently assaulted the son of a neighbour, and the parent has kidnapped Chewick in order to punish him and then kill the man for bringing shame on his family. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is the rules talk section where I'll talk about some aspect of the traveller rules. As you may know in book four, the world building book, you can produce a world that is small. But what does that actually mean? I've been doing some research to try and find out. Small worlds are more likely to have a lower gravity, unless of course they're very dense. What would you do when you're walking around on a low gravity world? A quick jump could send you off into space. You could wear weights, which would allow gravity to take a stronger hold on you. But would that actually hold you down, or would it simply impede your movement? It would certainly increase your mass, so once you were moving, it would be harder to stop. So if you did jump off of a low-mass world carrying weights, which you hoped to hold you down, they could actually end up carrying you off into space. Certainly could be a fun few incidents for you to have in your game. I had a quick look at the NASA site to see if I could find any information there about small planets. One of the things they said was that no small planets have rings, none they've seen yet anyway. It's also quite apparent that life as we know it is very unlikely to appear on a small world. One of the reasons for this is that the world is probably not stable enough to have developed life. Often these smaller worlds have orbits that cross through either asteroid belts or through or across the orbits of other small planets and so there are often collisions and thus you don't have enough time to develop life as we know it. People will have trouble with bone and muscle loss in low gravity worlds, that is small worlds. You could install lots of gravity plates around the place but of course they need energy to run and if you're not running a starship then where are you getting that power from? That could be a point of contention. I also read that being under low gravity reduces your immune system's capabilities. Now that could be quite interesting. It means a plague could spread around a small world very quickly, not just because it's small and people are packed together, because that's the way the human body behaves under a lower gravity. Another factor is that a smaller world finds it harder to hold on to an atmosphere. An atmosphere is not just about breathing. Even a unbreathable atmosphere gives you protection from solar radiation. Now here's another random quote from NASA. Blood feels gravity too. On Earth, blood pools in the feet. When people stand, the blood pressure in their feet can be quite high, apparently about 200 millimetres of mercury, I think that means. In the brain, though, it's only about 60. 
In space, where the familiar pool of gravity is missing, the head-to-toe gradient vanishes. Blood pressure equalises across your body and becomes about this hundred throughout the body. That's why astronauts can look a bit odd. Their faces get filled with fluid, puff up, and their legs, which can lose about a litre of fluid each, thin out. But the shift in blood pressure also sends a signal. Our bodies expect blood pressure gradient throughout the body. Higher blood pressure in the head raises an alarm. The body says to itself, you have too much blood. Apparently, within two or three days of weightless or low gravity, astronauts can lose as much as 22% of the blood volume in their body. So what does that mean? It means you're going to weigh less on a smaller planet. I think that what this means is that if your character became injured on a low-gravity planet that they'd been on for a few days, you could find the character bleeding out much quicker. And that could be something you could use in your games. You know, the need to patch a wound quicker than you would normally. The need to rush somebody to hospital to get a blood transfusion could become all the more important on a small world. piece of junk. Who bought this anyway? No, no, don't you dare say it was me. It's time to have a review. In this review, I'm taking a look at supplement number seven, Traders and Gumboats. The original book was published in 1980, and this is a look at the digital version available from drivethroughrpg.com. It's a scan of the original, and the text is searchable. The covers seem to have been remade for this PDF, which also appeared on the CD collection sold by Far Future. The text inside is perfectly readable throughout, and I'm happy to report that this book is not just a wall of text, but also includes quite a few pieces of art. There are a few diagrams showing features common to starships, such as hatchways and walkways. But best of all, there are deck plans for all the ships that are mentioned in here and artists' renderings of many of the ships from outside. As you may have guessed, this book is all about spaceships, and it presents a series of standard models and tells you about them in detail. Included are details of production, capabilities, and general usage. And as I said, the deck plans are provided too. Let me say, this book is not a series of bland statistics presented to the reader, but is rather an absorbing read from cover to cover. In these pages, you learn so much about space travel, trade, and imperial practices that this could really be classified as a sort of world book, rather than a catalogue of starships. I'll walk you through from cover to cover. It starts off by giving you the details of standard fittings and features of starships. Then comes a very interesting section about the X-boat network, with ship details for X-boats and their tenders and variants. Then come the details of three different types of trading vessel. Next up are gunboats, which are system defence ships. And then come four small ships, such as a ship's launch, a pinnace or a cutter. The last section presents six starship encounter tables that are more of the usual bland traveller style. So what do I think of this book? Simply fantastic. I recommend that any referee should get this book for background material it provides. The deck plans and layouts will give you a really good idea of how ships are laid out, and this info will help you build a real environment for your players. Go get it now. 
Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, and I'm here today to tell you about the Lusanne. The Lusanne is a quadruped that originates from the world of Titan II, but can now be found throughout the Imperium wherever it can be bred and fed. It is a large beast, weighing up to 400 pounds. It is grey and covered in short, wiry fur. It is predominantly herbivorial, but will eat carrion when it finds it, including the dead of its own species. Although it is the product of many thousands of years of selective breeding, the animal can still be dangerous. Preferring to live in social herds, when isolated, the Lusanne can become violent and even aggressive. When attacking, the Lusanne uses its twin horns that grow forward from its upper skull in charging at an enemy. In defence or escape, it uses sweeps of its long tail which is lined with jagged plates that have been known to amputate the legs of a chasing predator. When kept in constrained quarters, it is common for farmers to dock the tails and to remove the horns soon after birth. This makes the creatures easier to handle and stops accidental injuries. This practice is never used when the Lusanne is roaming free and might be subject to predation. Some predators, particularly megafauna and pack hunters, have been known to make Lusanids food of choice, although this does not happen on many worlds. Farmers choose the Lusanne for a variety of reasons, but not least is its meat. As a protein provider, it is an all-rounder, with all but the bones, horns and tail being readily rendered into foodstuffs. The skin, if not rendered for food, is sought after on many worlds for garments, sometimes for its decorative properties, but more often for its extreme warmth. Standard terraforming practices and protocols call for the introduction of the Lusanne as soon as practicable, because they are hardy, can eat almost any vegetable matter, and provide versatile resources to early settlers. Under tended farming conditions, Lusanne quickly become used to the presence of humans, and do not naturally regard them as a threat. But on the wild worlds where great herds of Lusanne run free, it is best to be wary of the herds, as the females can become aggressive if the herd has cubs. Although large, the Lusanne is very fast for its size, and can easily run a man to ground, often reaching speeds of 25 miles an hour, although they cannot sustain this for very long. Their preferred habitat is an open plain, where they can see predators and utilise their speed and weapons to best effect. Lusanne brains are considered an edible delicacy. Have you got that feed ready? Yep, feeding it through now. Got it, thanks. That net feed's got a weird name. What is it? Whale song. The captain likes whale song? This is On The Nets, where I tell you about something I found on the worldwide interweb. If you haven't found this website yet, where have you been since the 90s? It's time to put aside the coke and the weed and get yourself over to the amazing TravelerMap.com. This fantastic website is a massive online map of the Traveller known space. It starts with a top-level view when you first open the site, and everything is on there that you'll be familiar with from the Traveller universe. But you can drill down, and as you zoom into this map, you get progressively more and more detail. At the closest level, you see individual hexes, 
with all of the good traveller map detail, including the UPP of each planet. If you or your players are about to plan a big journey, this could be just the job for you. It also has a nice search feature, so you can locate any planet you're interested in and get an idea for what's around it. I'll admit that the map includes some unofficial subsectors, but as the data persists and comes from some sources, such as the Zodani base, then you can't really object too much. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're cold? There's a spacer in the corner booth. Don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? The thousands of channels. Crookwatch. Ah, It's time for another person of interest. Known simply as the Patriarch, Nemean Fiatu has created himself a place in history of his home sector. The story of his rise to prominence began during a revolt which erupted across all the planets in the hubward half of his home subsector. At the time, the entire subsector was under an even looser oversight than is usual within the Imperium, and thus a single man was able to rise to power and to seize control of many worlds. This man may have been insane from the very beginning, but it is certain that he was mad after twenty years of ruling. His debauchery was legion, and his example led to the spread of gross abuse of power within the worlds that were under his sway. He even declared that such behaviour was required by those who held power in order for them to remain sane. The abuse spread from world to world. The people were being crushed and broken by the yoke of such leadership. Communications were strictly controlled, and the utter degradation hidden from the Imperium. The people saw no hope. Those that revolted or dared to resist were brutally eliminated or subjugated. Torture, followed by death, became the standard punishment for all infractions, real or imagined. It was in this environment that Nemean Fiatu rose as a beacon of light and hope. Nemean believed that no one deserved to live under the conditions that were being imposed on himself and those around him. He started his resistance by forming a small group of like-minded individuals. With this handful of people, he led them to formulate a plan of resistance. Some in his group wanted to start a violent revolution, to attack the police, take their weapons, and then to attack the leadership. Nemean, however, was firmly set against such a course. He reasoned that even if they should gather a few weapons, to attack the police was a pointless exercise. There were always more police, more people willing to subjugate their former friends in order to feather their own nests. What he suggested as an alternative was to remove the tools of those with the power. To use violence, but not against the people in power. After all, he said, a man threatened with death will fight for his life. He's motivated for it. A man who's not threatened with death has much less to fight for and nothing worth dying for. From that moment, Nemean directed his people to take direct action, but to ensure that they hurt no one. They rushed street patrols, took their guns, and destroyed them. They took vehicles and burnt them. Many of the downtrodden people were killed in these raids, but Nemean strictly enforced his policy of non-violence towards people. His raids grew bolder, attacking police stations and politicians' offices. 
In every case, the tools of oppression and power were broken or burnt, but the people were set free. In time, towns were set free, and then districts, and then entire worlds. The words of Nomean spread across the space lanes, as did his followers, taking the wave of freedom to world after world until the oppression was eradicated. Self-government was reinstated, under imperial oversight, of course, throughout, and Nomean, as the architect of their freedom, was honoured and revered. Nomean has since retired from public life and resides in a country retreat where he meditates and wants for nothing. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end of the show. Except I'd like to mention that if you are interested in that 316 campaign I mentioned, you could go to Drive Through RPG and do a search for Deathbringers. That's the name of the campaign. If you're interested in getting in touch, submitting something to the podcast, or just sending me an email, please do get in touch. You can get me at behindtheclaw at outlook.com. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, segment items, please do send them in. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. It's home on the web is at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump. <laughs>